You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And so today we are recording on part two of our uh, series we are doing on intelligence. And so in the last episode, we really just covered the basics of the definition of intelligence. Um, I think that would this episode can probably stand on its own, but it'd probably be useful to have a little bit of that background definition. So if you haven't heard that one, you might want to go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one. Um, but as I said, I think that the topics we cover here will mostly work sort of on their own. Yeah. And so pretty much a summary of what we went over in the previous episode was that you know, no one has ever really known what is supposed to be meant by intelligence. And many people have attempted to define it in many different ways. Yeah, essentially, it represents a set of competencies in development, which was a definition proposed by David Shank. Um, but really, it's too abstract and nebulous to really be measured or or warrant an attempt at being measured because it's this uh, this it's just more of a concept than it is an entity. Exactly. So today, though, we're going to go into a little bit more of the history of the attempts to measure intelligence and chat a little bit about what that has yielded. Right. And so looking back early at history, a lot of people have often attempted to evaluate things in such a way that they can be ranked in a hierarchy from better to worse, right? Exactly. And this has been so commonly applied throughout recorded history that it almost seems like it's inevitable. It I just mean, always happens. Right. And the very fact that we tend to do this almost makes it seem like an argument that someone might make is that it's natural for us to rank and, and arrange things in a hierarchy. And therefore, it's like an appropriate and OK thing to do. Exactly. So like, you know, at one point it was believed that Earth was the best planet. Well, I mean, you know, as of right now, I think we could argue that's the best planet. We were alive on it, so we like it okay. <laughs> but what, but it, yeah, and it is for humans, but what does it mean to be the best planet? Right. And so, as far as I am aware, um, pretty much every attempt to create a taxonomy or to com compartmentalize or split or divide things into subgroups, especially ones that don't necessarily lend themselves easily to that compartmentalization, attempts to do this has usually led to a tendency to try and rank things. So we, we don't just look at things and say, this is, a, this is a type of human over here and this is a type of human over here. When people have tried to divide humans by things like their geography, like what part of the world they live in, by their religion, uh, by their skin color or kind of whatever, it almost always, and as far as I know, just invariably has always led to someone or you know many people uh, ranking one group of people as being better or more important than another group of people in some fundamental way that then leads to how that group of people are treated and regarded by the, the that culture and sort of the rest of the world. Yeah, and to enter speculation station here a little bit, um, it makes sense evolutionarily to have a tendency to prioritize certain things and therefore view them as more important. Probably, It probably does have an advantage to do that a little bit, but if you can imagine a species that views everything as equally important, it would be less likely to prioritize choices that would ensure its survival. Right, and so... Um one of the earliest attempts to measure relative mental worth and capacity was proposed by a man named Franz Joseph Gall in 1796. You may have heard his name. Um, and he suggested that our skulls have these natural lumps and indentations. 
and uh, that these lumps and indentations on our head, Miranda's feeling her head right now, <laughs> um, that those represent a relative mental capabilities and capacities. And so he called this phrenology from Greek phren, meaning mind, and logos, meaning knowledge and the study of. So the study of the mind was the original definition of that. Um, and most people know that phrenology has long been discredited as a pseudoscience and pseudomedicine. Um, and that it, this really has no basis in any scientific reality that exists. This has actually been discarded quite a long time ago, although many various versions of this have actually sort of evolved out of this and they continue to persist in one form or another. For example, reflexology is kind of the same idea that you like these special parts on your foot that are linked to parts of your brain and your personality. Um, and so it's not that that idea has entirely gone away. The sort of the, the underlying theme of it remains, um, but it the underlying theme of it was the pseudoscience. So it's no more valid today than it was in the, in the 1700s and early 1800s. Um, and, and it really is had, like I said, been fully discredited, but let's move on to another, uh, friends of a, of a sort. Sure. So Sir Francis Galton, who was born in 1822, um, he wore many titles and all of these depicted him as this sort of like intellectual elite. He had like eight different <laughs> credits to his name. It, but this guy was kind of a piece of work. He really attempted to quantify everything. Quant quantification was like his religion, right? It was that important to him. And he especially wanted to quantify things, to put some sort of number to things that were arbitrary and subjective constructs. For example, he, he very famously, well, famously for him, um, he tried to quantify beauty by the various places that he visited. And so he would rank the beauty of the, of the women there. And he also would try and quantify boredom. And so that he had uh, a ranking for a level of boredom that he measured in like the number of times someone checked their watch in a meeting or something. And so essentially he believed that if he perceived anything in a particular way, that that personal experience that he had actually reflected the reality of that thing and therefore any attempts to try and put numbers to it would be a valid scientific endeavor because according to him uh, that's what was actually happening in his subjective experience of it was the best measurement of reality that could exist and and that doing this was a critically important and necessary activity is to try and assign quantities to these subjective abstract concepts for some reason. Yeah, and he believed this so much, he went so far as to establish like a laboratory to study the relative quantified value of humans based on their school size. Yeah, so Galton, um, he's actually famous for coining a phrase you probably have heard, uh, nature versus nurture, and um, which is actually almost the name of the show. I was going to call it nature and nurture, but then that is the name of another podcast. <laughs> um, and so he, he coined this phrase specifically, however, to imply that nature only is the exclusively dominating force in all things psychological. So everything that you do is really attributable to, uh, to your biology from birth and that nothing changes that. Okay. Um, he also coined another term that many people have probably heard, uh, which is eugenics. And this means to selectively breed people to make the best people is what it boils down to. And the idea being here that there are uh, superior people and that they should be 
selected and chosen to make more people and that there are inherently inferior people and that those should be prevented from breeding by force if necessary. And so to Galton, inferior people were generally people of color, um, people of lower social standing, um, people who maybe had maybe some quirky personality traits, anything that sort of differed from their ideal of their culture and their values and their sort of status in society, those are people who should not be breeding and that uh, a program could and should be established, according to them, to prevent those people from having children and marrying and that sort of thing. And this also sort of fed into this idea that marriages should be arranged and specifically uh, oriented with the idea that they would produce a particular kind of child. And so this um, this whole idea was... Uh further developed by uh, Samuel George Morton, who was born in 1799. So he was a physician and a natural scientist, and he believed in the tenet of polygyny. And so this is the idea that human races are distinct species that evolved from entirely different lineages of animal. Yeah, the the <laughs> hypothesis, this is such a ridiculous hypothesis. It's crazy. It, is, it essentially predicted, and they really believe this, that children who were born from mixed race couples would not be viable. That is, they wouldn't be able to have more children because they would be sterile because those races come from different species. So going well, to like mules. Right, exactly. Yeah. So mules are the uh, horse and a donkey and most mules are sterile. They can't have more offspring. Um, and so that was sort of the hypothesis of this polygyny argument. Well, one of the predictions was that children of mixed race couples would not be viable children. And um, however, but that's obviously not. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have very clearly seen so many examples where mixed races can obviously have viable children who are capable of having more children. So that, among many other things, um, including genetic testing that we have now that they didn't then, but um, that very obviously negates at least that, if not uh, the entire hypothesis of polygyny. So another hypothesis related to this and typically espoused by polygenism had an inherently distinct capacity for intelligence and that this could be shown empirically by analyzing the biology of the races. Right. And so to do this, Morton collected thousands of human skulls. I mean, he at the time he was publishing, he had around five or six hundred or maybe six or seven hundred, but he eventually acquired thousands of them um, and he acquired them over acquired? the course of... Acquired? Uh, yeah, right. He's out murdering people. No, he actually mostly got them from uh, graves and burial sites and especially from like Egyptian tombs and I think from some museums. Mm. Um, and so the majority or his, his major work that he was mostly known for was published in 1839. Um, he was about 40 years old and it was called Crenia Americana and he was primarily at this point trying to prove the inferiority of um, Native Americans. And you can imagine 1839, that was kind of a hot topic um, leading up to the, we're heading toward the Civil War at this point, but uh, this was also largely during some of the Western expansion across the United States. Um, and anyway, Morton reasoned that the capacity of the skull would really prove the mental worth of a race of indiv individuals. And so the hypothesis there being that um, the larger a skull was, the more brains it would hold, therefore the more sp the smarter the person would be. And the assumption and the, the prediction is that the uh, people of Caucasian or white races would have larger skulls and people of um, African or dark skin races would have uh, smaller skulls. That was, that was essentially his, his hypothesis. And this idea of measuring skulls to 
I guess, find out something about their mental worth is called craniometry or craniology. Um, and especially done so in the service of distinguishing races and how their skulls uh, might be used to interpret their relative intellectual worth. And so, of course, as a Caucasian male, he found that Caucasian men had the highest capacity for intelligence. He then put Jewish men in the middle level of intelligence and then Hindu and black men at the bottom of intelligence. Essentially, you can sort of see that the darker the skin, the less intellectual capacity he believed them to have. And this was based on his measurements, um, which we'll get into what else contributed to his measurements. But his general summary of the characteristic behavioral features of these ethnicities were so offensively racist that I won't actually bother repeating them here, but he had a whole list of things to describe. Well, this is what a Jewish man does. And so therefore he's less intelligent. And I've shown that with the skull here. Did he, do you know if he looked at women's skulls at all, or was that just like completely disregarded? <laughs> he, he actually did. Um, and I, I, I will say a little bit more about that in a moment because um, the treatment of women's skulls is an interesting sort of side note in all of this as well. Fair enough. <laughs> So how did he go about conducting the measurement of these skulls? Um, well, first, it's important to understand essentially uh, how he treated the samples. And so, for one, he did show with his data that the inferior races had less cranial capacity, so they had less room for brains than what he considered to be the superior races. Part of this is that he excluded large skulls from the races he believed to be inferior so that when he did the average, he only averaged the smaller skulls and therefore the data would yield a smaller average for that particular race. So he basically would look at, there's this group of people from this region, uh, these, these larger skulls aren't really representative, so I'm going to throw them out and I'm only going to keep these ones, which some of them were likely from um, like children and under, you know, less developed people, but he took those smaller ones and said, okay, so this is their average cranial capacity. He also then excluded the small skulls from the races he believed to be superior. So for those that he, uh, that were those Caucasian and white races, they, if there were um, unreasonably small skulls, he would set them aside again, thinking that these aren't representative. So he excluded the small skulls from the races he believed to be superior, yielding that the overall average size of the, those Caucasian races would then appear to be larger because he was throwing out those skulls that would bring the average down. And so the Caucasian race would actually average much smaller than what he had reported if he hadn't excluded those smaller examples of skulls. Now, what's interesting is that based on his notes and his writing, he reports that he did this. So it doesn't really seem like he's deliberately fudging his data. Um, he, As I said, he sort of reasoned that those skulls, for whatever reason, weren't really representative. Also, his samples, for some of them, were very small. So, for example, he had one region where he had only three skulls, and he used that to determine the relative capacity for that entire race of people. Um, and, and he had gotten rid of like the other skulls that were a little bit larger again, thinking those weren't representative. I'm like, you only had five and you're down to three. <laughs> Why weren't those representative? Anyway, um, clearly, uh, he would not have excluded the excessively small skulls from the race that he considered to be inferior. He would have absolutely included those and then considered that to be more representative of his sample, nor would he have he excluded, um, and he didn't, he, he totally included these, the larger than average skulls from those that were the sort of white or Caucasian samples. So this is a, a classic example of what we would call confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if we've talked about that, but... I think a little bit, but it's probably worth addressing in a deeper dive at some point. Yeah. 
So um, when these errors in his data were corrected, we are left with no discernible meaningful difference between the capacity of the skulls belonging to certain races, right? So it comes out a wash. Right. Yeah. So when when you factor out the his fudging of his data, then it gets to the point that they have about equal about equal capacity for how many how much space are in there. But it gets worse. Um, in later analysis, he received skulls for measurement because um, he, he wanted to get some more data. And so he received all of these skulls and he had no information about what race belonged to the skulls that he got. So he couldn't look at one skull and he didn't have like a tag that said, oh, this is from a white Caucasian person or this one's from a dark skinned person or whatever it would be. He just got these skulls randomly. And so he, without that information, he simply divided them up and said, all right, well, these larger skulls over here are going to be the ones that belong to white people and the smaller skulls over here belong to darker skinned people. So, I mean, he literally with no basis whatsoever for making that decision, just decided that if it was larger than it belonged to white people based on nothing. I mean, based on the fact that that's what he wanted it to be. I just, as an aside, I want to go back. We're, we're recording this because we're on video right now. And I want to just like take screen captions of my face <laughs> at various points in this explanation. Right. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> I don't hide my face feelings well. <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, that's all to say this is ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That if we really wanted to know, you know, I think you have like a really good um, illustration of this. So why don't you go ahead and share it? Okay. So this whole idea of him just sort of arbitrarily selecting one group of skulls to belong to one race of people without any, un- any other information, this would be like, let's say I go to a store and I want to say like, all right, how many rich people are in the store versus how many poor people? I'm going to look at the cars in the parking lot and I'm going to say, all right, all blue cars that are out here, those belong to poor people. And then any other color that belongs to rich people. And so, okay, there's 80 rich people in the store and there's 15 poor people in the store. So mostly rich people shop here would be my conclusion. But again, this would be based on the totally arbitrary decision that blue meant it belonged to poor people, which I have no basis for deciding that. I simply said, all right, blue is for poor people. That's what, that is what it is. I also haven't decided what rich or poor means, but that's exactly why I use this example is for him. He hasn't defined what intelligent or non-intelligent means. He just said, all right, these big schools belong to uh, intelligent white people. So there we are. Um, so just um, just a ridiculous thing that he's, uh, he's doing all together. So this yeah. is going to spoil a little bit of later discussion, but skull size is not correlated with intelligence. No way. No, no right? Um, <laughs> no. I think that people even maybe still believe this, but it's not. Uh, the size of your head is not correlated with intelligence. It is correlated with body size. Um, and body size is also not correlated with intelligence. <laughs> Fun fact. Right. Okay. So beyond that, how do we get to the actual relative volume of the skull? And this is really fun. Morton used mustard seeds. He why would not? put them. Why not? He would put, uh, he would back them into the skull and then um, he would pack them into the skull and then he would calculate the volume of the skulls by how many mustard seeds would fit. All right, so let's There's go. There's some over, problems with this, right? Yeah, let, let's go over the sort of issues around using mustard seeds, is and your and this is your measurement for how uh, how much capacity is in a skull. Um, first, mustard seeds are not all the same size, so variable um, variable amounts would fit in uh, the same skull. You might do one batch of mustard seeds in a skull and get one measurement, then do a different batch of mustard seeds in the skull and get a different measurement. So the measurements that you get from mustard seeds can't really be trusted. Yeah. And also mustard seeds can be packed in variable volumes, right? So you could add just enough or tamp them down, squeeze them, you know, they have a little bit of give. So that's also going to fudge 
any measurement that you would uh, use mustard seeds for. And there's some amount of record that Morton actually did have procedures for if it was a white skull and it seemed like it should be able to fit more, you could sort of shake them really hard and push them in to like cram them into the skull so you could make more room. You could actually shift them around quite a bit to add a significant amount of more mustard seeds in there. And I'm just, you know, imagining him doing this thinking like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. And the rest of the world more enlightened looking at this going like you are literally faking your data right now. This um, sounds like weird performance art rather than like actual science. I know, right? It's so ludicrous. It's just, it's it's funny and also kind of sad. It's just like, yeah, you have to laugh because it's awful. Right. Now, he did recognize the problems with mustard seeds and eventually he switched to lead shot. Um, now, lead shot is at least less squishy and malleable <laughs> than mustard <Sure>. seeds. Um, <laughs> um and it's also more consistently sized. But this really didn't change the fact that he was he was using biased samples by selecting only large skulls for the races he believed to be inferior and only small skulls for the races he believed to be inferior. He was simply using different measurements for the same biased results. And, and therefore, and, uh, you know, also lead shot, like just use math, man, <laughs> like calculate <laughs> volume. Um, but anyway, so uh, that was... Uh, part of the issue with him coming out to these measurements. And then, so he would take these measurements and he would basically find averages and then decide what the relative uh, capacity was based on those average. As you do. Right. Okay. So we've got Morton and his mustard seeds and his skulls. Right. Um, but, uh, and this is all really, truly convincing. Uh, well, but we, yeah, I mean, we have some even more advanced races science that right. came later. Yeah, I mean, so he, he added relatively objective quantification of this, like hard to argue with that, right? So we'll try and summarize a few more of these other attempts um, somewhat briefly. Uh, in 1906, there was an American American named Robert Bennett Bean, and he decided um, that the corpus callosum, which is a substrate that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, um, that it would be denser in the front part of the corpus callosum. This is called the genu. If you were more intelligent, so if you're more intelligent, you would have more neural connections in the front part of the brain at the corpus callosum specifically. Okay, and then uh, if you had more densely packed um, corpus callosum in the rear part of the brain called uh, the splenium, uh, then that would mean you were less intelligent. And so uh, that's what he was looking at. So the rear part of the brain uh, also contains the olfactory sense of uh, the olfactory sense, which is smell. And um, he specifically states, this is so weird. He says, we all know that Negroes have a superior sense of smell. And so this he uses as a way to try and support the idea that he would have, they would have a more robustly developed splenium or the rear part of the corpus callosum because according to him, they were less intelligent and therefore, and also coincidentally had a greater sense of smell. I don't, that was a very weird conclusion for him to yeah. try and use to back it up. But anyway, he was using um, the brains from bodies that were deceased and he would, he would measure their brains of blacks and whites and he would compare the relative density of the parts of the corpus callosum. Okay. And he concluded from his data and he, uh, the graphs are available online. You can find them. They clearly depict a difference, a very like almost black and white difference. Ah, that's a funny, I didn't mean this. That was a pun, black and white. Get it? Uh, that was an accident. Uh, clearly depicted a difference um, in the biology of the brain where that, there was a denser packing of um, neurons in the corpus callosum in the uh, rear part of the, the brain for people that were of darker skin and more densely packed for people who are of whiter skin. 
He also pointed out that uh, women were inferior for both groups, because why not? Um, because if you're going to be a bigot, you may as well go big, I suppose. Yeah, be misogynist too. Why not? Yeah, just you know, throw it all in there. Those were essentially the conclusions that he drew from his measurements, and he uh, represented those with, with data. But we still don't know how many mustard seeds fit into a woman's skull, so... True. I'm just, it's important. You know, not who, I'm not convinced. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> oh, man. So... Interestingly, Bean did not believe the size of the brain mattered. He even wrote that, quote, so many factors enter into brain weight that it is questionable whether discussion of the subject is profitable. So one important feature was that Bean knew um, when Bean was doing his experiments, he knew which brains belonged to which races before he did his measurements. So whether consciously or not, he... uh, he may have manipulated his data remains to be seen, but he knew, he very clearly knew like, okay, this, this one belongs to a woman. This one belongs to a man. This one belongs to someone who's black. This one belongs to someone who's white. And, uh, he, he did not, um, I guess, hide that fact or mask that fact when he was going through doing his measurements. And, um, it's possible. Another scientist thought that that was, these are, these data are too clean to be accurate. So when another scientist attempted to replicate his research, um, but they looked at only the brains and did not know the race or the sex of the brain until after they completed their measurements, the data clearly revealed that there was no difference between the races. Okay. So Bean either purposefully or unintentionally biased his data by simply confirming his pre-existing bias, as you were saying, Abraham. Right. Okay. Now... Paul Broca um, is another interesting figure in this, and there's a lot to say about him. So we're going to dive right in. So Paul Broca um, was born in 1824. Uh, he was an anatomist and an anthropologist. And yes, he is uh, the famous Paul Broca, uh, who discovered the Broca's area of the brain associated with uh, language. And But before he made that landmark discovery, he really staunchly defended, uh, well, he, and this didn't ever really necessarily go away, but um, part for a lot of his career, he really staunchly defended the idea that brain size is an unambiguous and empirical measure of intellectual capacity. Interesting. So like many others, he believed that humans could and should be ranked linearly and hierarchically rather than considering that there is a complex matrix of factors that contribute to how a human develops and performs. Yes. And in the 1860s, uh, Broca concluded that as humans are closely related to primates, the race that most closely, that's closest to the primates, would therefore be less intelligent as primates are obviously, according to him, not as intelligent as we are. And so one of the characteristics he latched onto was the relative length of the forearm proportional to the length of the upper arm. And that that would indicate intelligence because primates tend to have longer forearm bones than their upper arm. He reasoned that blacks would also have longer forearms and therefore uh, relative to their upper arms. And therefore this would be another biological marker of their intellectual inferiority so the results um so several measurements were conclusively shown that people of african descent not only didn't have larger forearms but that white people specifically did have larger forearms right and so did broca conclude that blacks were intellectually superior of course not instead he wrote that quote it seems difficult to me to continue to say the elongation of the forearm is a character of degradation or inferiority end quote so specifically he says that because the relative proportion of the length of the forearm to the upper arm would actually place whites below blacks and in their intellectual capacity, that that is clearly an incorrect measurement. Talk about moving the goalpost, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. This is, this is like hard, hard to hear and hard to read about, like how 
badly done all of this is. Um, obviously, he would not have reached this conclusion had the measurements actually confirmed his pre-existing bias going into it. Exactly. Um, many have also speculated that intelligence would mean tendency toward like law-abiding behavior. And interestingly, many of the brains of criminals were significantly larger than average. So one of Broca's successors was kind of troubled by this and concluded that, quote, too much of a good thing is bad for some people, Right. quote. You gotta move that goalpost again as soon as yes. things aren't lining up. Um, yeah, Broca really tried to reason that higher social class was due to higher intelligence. And uh, what he did is he raided some graves of some people and he was looking to measure their skull and he was specifically looking at how he could look at their social class as a way of also denoting their intelligence. And so he found that there were inconsistencies with some poor people having larger brains than like rich, well-to-do people. And he reasoned that some of the poor people, even though they were poor, were better people than the rich people. I mean, why not, right? Okay, sure. Um, another avenue of interest might be to instead look at, okay, well, if brain size is, is going to accurately represent intelligence, then we could clearly look at the people who are geniuses and compare their brain sizes to people who are not. And obviously, if they were geniuses, and the hypothesis would be that they would have larger than average brains and larger than average skulls, right? Sure. Why not? So indeed, so many of them had larger than average brains. But what was interesting was that many of them had entirely average sized brains or even smaller than average. So for example, like Einstein's brain was only an average sized brain. Yeah. And like Bean, Broca also decided that the front part of the skull, so Bean had really emphasized the front part of the, the corpus callosum, but uh, uh, Broca, again, was still uh, believed that the skull was important. He decided that the front part of the skull would be enlarged for those with higher intelligence, and the rear of the skull would be larger for those with lower intelligence. So even if their brain was larger, if it was larger in the back, they were still less intelligent, and that way he could get around uh, measurements that were proving his hypothesis false. Yeah. And part of this measure was done with something called the cranial index, or essentially it's a, a relative width to length ratio. Because Broca himself had a relatively long and narrow skull, this meant that long and narrow skulls were more intelligent. Imagine that. I know, right? <laughs> However, many uh, dark-skinned people have even longer narrower skulls than their white counterparts. So Broca decided to emphasize which part of the skulls was represented in the elongation. Again, front is good, back is bad. Which the assumption then is that black people had more room at the back of their brain from elongation, while the white people had more room in the front. I'm getting this like image of someone with just like this protruding forehead that's just like falling over onto their right? face, like yeah. a like kind of like a cone head but going straight out. Exactly, <laughs> almost like a unicorn in a way. Yeah. Um, another part of his uh, arguments was this part of the skull. And Broca really clinged to this for a long time. This is called the foramen magnum. Now, this is the hole in the base of your skull where your spinal cord and the spinal column enter the skull, right? So you can even see this on a person. If you stand in the mirror, look at someone near where their uh, where the spine on their neck goes into the base of their skull. That's called the foramen magnum. And and um, this hole is usually near the base of the skull when many animals are born, but it sort of migrates backward as non-human animals develop. Um, it doesn't really migrate very much for humans. It actually remains at the bottom of the their skull. So the logic, according to Broca, is that the further back the form and magnum, the more like a monkey or a less evolved animal someone would be, and therefore the less intelligent they would be. The further forward the form and magnum, the less like a monkey, and therefore less like a non-human animal, the more intelligent they would be. 
So comparing black and white skulls, uh, what he found was that the actual relative position was the same for both people of African descent as people who were Caucasian. Um, however, people with dark skin, uh, they uh, on average have their faces protruding forward more so than people who are the white counterparts. So if you factored in that face length, which of course Broca did, then this would actually make the, uh, the whole position further backward uh, on their skull, again, making them less intelligent, according to his criteria for this. So yeah, Broca noticed that black people tend to have longer faces, which might obscure the data. So of course, he had to correct for this, as you do. Um, he simply just subtracted out the face length. Easy. The result, people of African descent had their foramen magnum further ahead of where white people had theirs. And so this meant that uh, black people would be intellectually superior according to his hypothesis. So, of course, what did Broca do? He shifted his criteria. Right. So instead, the relative position was no longer important, he concluded. The point was that the brains were added to the back part of the skull, going back to this, where intelligence was not assumed to be. And he simply shifted the argument. And so um, a lot of this is summarized in this excellent book called The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould. And what he said about Broca's attitude toward, uh, toward his conclusions was, quote, heads, I'm superior, tails, you're inferior, end quote, which is to say with Broca's constantly shifting criteria, he could never be wrong. He would always just change the argument so that he was always right. Um, and, and therefore, like, this is just, this is not good science, right? Yeah. And of course, this is all predicated on this idea that um, brain capacity, more advanced um, intellect is at the front of the brain and then more amelian responses are, you know, occurring in, or a function of the of the back of the brain, which we also know is not is, is unfounded. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it can also be pointed out that with women's brains, um, which were included, and um, Broca had this sociologist uh, named Lebon that decided that women were inherently inferior. Um, Broca wrote specifically that although some diminished brain size of women can be attributed to their smaller body size, that the rest of their size of their brain is actually due to their intellectual inferiority. And Lebon added that they were so inferior that if attempts were made to boost women's intellect, society would collapse. Yep, that'd be the end of the family and uh, and harmony in society, if uh, because there you simply cannot educate women because they just don't have the capacity to be educated. Oh boy. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> just confirming so many. Just yeah, as an aside, just all of this confirming so many biases of the times. Yeah. Um, uh, another important thing that we didn't really talk about, but there were attempts to actually just, so there were the indirect attempts to measure the capacity of the skull, the shape of the skull, the elongation of the skull, the position of the form and magnum. Uh, obviously at some point people decided, well, let's just pull out a skull and or pull out a brain and just weigh it and see how much it weighs. Okay. That seems like a fine idea, except there's a lot of things to consider. First of all, the cause of death is important because if they die at old age, they typically have slightly uh, smaller brains than they do if they die when they're sort of in their middle age or their height of their, um, um, their health and vitality. Um, people who die by blunt trauma can actually have engorged brains, so they tend to weigh more than others. Um, how long the brain has been out of the body affects how much moisture it retains, which actually affects its relative weight. Uh, whether uh, How it's kept in any solution that it might be kept in affects relative volume of, of the brain. Uh, there's a whole bunch of factors and host of factors that go into even measuring the weight of the brain itself that, again, that's just not a useful uh, indicator of intelligence and how it how it could be measured. And there are a, a couple other uh, ridiculous things that people have done to try and uh, measure intellect by looking at the anatomy. 
Yeah, so Cesar Lombroso was another uh, researcher, so to speak, who believed that anatomy clearly set the limit for intellectual capacity and um, therefore it could easily be observed. So one example he looked into was the feet of prostitutes and claimed that their feet were more like apes' feet than actual human feet, and that's why they were prostitutes. Uh, Sure. So he looked at tattooing as a sign of criminality, and to Lombroso, that meant that people with tattoos were just inherently stupid or less than yep it was also lombroso or maybe someone else actually i couldn't find the exact reference from uh, where i had learned this originally uh, but uh, someone had attempted to measure intelligence by measuring the distance from the belly button to the tip of the penis called the navel to penis ratio with a shorter distance indicating you were less intelligent if i'm remembering it correctly but that that was a real measurement that they tried to look at <laughs> that ratio oh man so oh. uh wow okay what a colorful history we have wow. here yeah it's so I, I will say i apologize it's so hard not to be kind of snarky when you're talking about this stuff and um you know they 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 they, these are early attempts at science and in many ways you know we wouldn't have the scientific understanding that we have today if it weren't for this type of of research and inquiry which just demonstrated very clearly that um you know things like um you know we talk about description prediction and control these things where you might see some sort of like correlation um doesn't necessarily mean that that actually is what is the controlling force um for whatever of interest that you're actually studying so yeah if you have any thoughts on that (laughs) well no i think it's a good point like we do sort of look at these things and we poke fun and and we we do so coming from a place of understanding uh how complex and variable these things are and some, you know, I had a student once who asked me about some of this and they're like, why didn't someone like stop them? And I said, you know, at their time, they were considered like completely in the right. This was an assumption that most people had, even those people who were on the receiving end of being called stupid, uh, that there these this was legitimate science and that these assumptions were well-founded, well-documented facts and that uh, simply doing the research to prove it was not really that controversial. Honestly, if you were someone who believed that all people were had the equal capacity to be to be intelligent and to do well in life, that was kind of an outsider perspective to take in some circles. So I guess it's just worth uh, considering that, you know, it's like looking back and we, and we look at um, Abraham Lincoln was, you know, if you look at his writings, he said many really, really racist and appropriate things. Um, and so held by today's standards, he looks like a terrible person, but he also was one of the most forward thinking people sort of of his day. Um, and so at that time he would have been seen as very progressive um, and that that's sort of similar for some of these people. That's not to excuse the incredible level of racism and bigotry and misogyny that they demonstrated. Um, it's just simply to say, looking at this in context is important for understanding how and why this research came to be and continued and persisted and led to the lines of, um, I guess, philosophy and theory that it did. Um, it was the, it, That was where the culture was at at the time. Um, and it changed because science is a self-correcting field that, um, that finds inconsistencies and flaws and then fixes them. Well said. Thank you. I will still continue to struggle to hide my snark. Though. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, th- I think we should embrace the snark and just let it okay. be. So, Good. all right. So let's go ahead and, and uh, start wrapping this up. Um, I think it's important to start just by saying that there are many factors that can account for body size and body type and skull size and all those things. And none of them actually really represent intelligence. 
Exactly. So even if all those measurements taken by, you know, those guys, Bean, Galton, Broca, Lombroso, and Morton had turned out to be um, racially distinct and in their direction of their hypothesis, which they weren't, they still would not have provided any evidence that one race was superior to another. Right, intellectually speaking. And this also assumes that intelligence is this hierarchical structured thing and that people could be ranked according to their intelligence in sort of a linear system with one person being better than another. Exactly. And it also assumes that all things valued by the culture of these researchers were inherently important in what constitutes intelligence, something we touched on in our previous episode when we were trying to define intelligence. Um, And then we'll also further expand on and we'll return to with our next episode. Right. When we go more into the sort of modern measurement of intelligence that exists and what people, to tease a little bit, are the most familiar with, the IQ. IQ test. That's right intelligence quotient so i think that pretty well wraps us up for this episode uh do you got anything else you want to add i don't perfect we're good to go all right well thanks as always for listening tune in next time to uh to hear the um the conclusion maybe there might be two more parts but definitely one more part of our series on intelligence and the iq and uh As always, you can reach us at our email or social media places, and you can listen to those for our um, summary at the end. And thanks for listening. This is Abraham. This is Miranda. And we are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.